Welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. Are you looking for practical ministry help to drive your ministry further, faster? Have a sinking feeling that your ministry training didn't prepare you for the real world? Hey, you're not alone. Join thousands of others in pursuit of stuff that we wish they had taught in seminary. Buckle up and let's get started with this week's Unseminary Podcast. All right. Well, welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. My name's Rich Bo- Birch, the host here. Don't even know my own name this morning. <laughs> my name's Rich Birch, the host here uh, at the podcast. And we're just so glad that you've decided to take some time out to listen in today. We've got a great conversation lined up. I'm super excited uh, to have Jim Tomberlin, a friend of mine, and a new friend, Tim Cool, uh, spending some time with us today talking about a brand new book. I'm looking forward to diving in. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Rich. With you, Rich, uh, you know, we're not just a friend; we're an old friend. We, <laughs> you know, I've been uh, uh, doing this thing together for a number of years. And Long it's been, time. It's true. It's true. Well, t- so Tim, why don't we let you go first? Why don't you tell us a little bit about who is Tim Cool? Why and why did you get such a great name? <laughs> no, I'm not sh- quite sure why God uh, allowed my parents to have the last name Cool, but it, it is it is truly a cool name to have. <laughs> And I've got you know I've got cool kids and a cool wife and we live in a cool house and you know what could be better and and, and I work for Cool Solutions Group. Nice. And Great. Uh, so you know it, I tell you what, Rich, it has been so cool. Uh, you know I've I've been doing this now 28 years, uh, working with churches in related to their facilities, helping them think through what's the best way to utilize you know the tools that God's entrusted to them, and then how do they take care of those tools long term as well. So it's a combination of of the planning, uh, building, and then how do you take care of the buildings you know that God's entrusted to you? Nice, very cool, Jim. Why don't you give us your story? How do you you know how do you describe yourself? You call yourself the multi-site guy, uh, but what? Uh, give us the Jim Tomberlin story. Well, Rich, you know basically my journey um, as the multi-site guy began as a pastor. I was uh, a pastor for nearly thirty years, three decades and uh, had the privilege of being one of the early pioneers in the whole multi-site church movement. That's what got me invited to leave my wonderful church in Colorado Springs, uh, Woodman Valley Chapel, to where, where my journey with multi-site church started, uh, to come to Chicago to develop the model there at Willow Creek, and five years later, four campuses later, uh, and at the front end of that whole movement, um, uh, I found myself being uh, seeked out, uh, sought out to um, help churches. Uh, how do you do this multi-site thing? Mm-hmm. So for the last 10 years, I went full-time as a consultant 10 years ago and uh, relocated to a nice warm place in Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale, and have been working and serving the church around the country and beyond for the last 10 years in helping churches discern, is multi-site right for us? And if it is, uh, how do you do it? Uh, that is that has morphed in some other, uh, has created some other waves. I found ourselves doing a lot of uh, um, consulting on mergers, multi-siting through mergers. About a th- over a third of all the multi-site campuses come through a, as a result of a merger. And so I'm doing a lot of this merger consulting, multi-site consulting. And when you're talking about growing churches, I have the privilege of working with growing, the, the, on the most part, the exciting, dynamic, growing churches. Uh, churches um, have a local expression, and they need facilities to meet in. And so I found myself uh, having a lot of uh, conversations and uh, about uh, what, where, where should we uh, start our campuses or where should we relocate? Uh, where do we start a church as a church planter? And um, that's a facility issues. And as we've talked about in our book, probably the most expensive decision church leaders will ever make in their ministry is <laughs> related so sure. to buildings and facilities. We know that church buildings don't... Uh, pe- don't reach people, people reach people. 
-hmm. But uh, Jesus said, wherever two or three gathered his name, uh, there, there he is in the midst, and that's a place. And so there's, there is a real physical place. And so church locality is all about facilities and location. And so we try to answer, what's, where's the best place to meet? Uh, what's the guidelines on what kind of facilities, etc.? Tim, who I've had the privilege of working with over the years as well, is a specialist in so many of the, in, in that whole area, arena. So anyway, we found ourselves just having a lot of conversations and thought, why don't we write a book about this and kind of share what we've, uh, or at least compile a book of what we've been writing about and then seeing. Very cool. Now, the name of your book is Church Locality, New Rules for Church Buildings in a Multi-Site Church Planting and Giga-Church World. Wow, that's a, that's a mouthful. Locality, church, you know, locality. T tell me, what does that word mean? What is this, you know, what's this book all about? Go ahead, jump in, Tim. Yeah, lo locality is kind of a play on words between location and facility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we all have to have a place to worship. I, I did a, 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 a real informal uh, survey with um, Sam Rayner, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I asked he and several other guys, how many churches in America meet in a building? <laughs> and, and the best we can tell is 99 and 44 one-hundredths of churches meet in a building. Even if you're a home church, you meet in a building. Meet in a building, yep. And if you're an internet church, your servers are in a building. <laughs> right. So knowing that facilities are, are you know, one of your most expensive decisions, and it's generally at least your second biggest line item in your church budget after your, your um, employees and your FTEs, mm -hmm. um, how... How can churches best think through their location tied to facilities related to them being a tool, not just a building? Right. You know, they're, they're not just a means to an they, they, they are in sorts a means to an end, but they can also be a detrimental means to a deterioration if it's not the right locality. Ooh, if it's yeah. not the right location, it, it just becomes a problem. Right, And so we wanted to be able to provide guidelines. In fact, Jim and I have laughed about this. When Jim first approached me almost a year ago, we were, we were at a retreat together. Uh, this started off to be a white paper that <laughs> turned into an e-book right. that then turned into a full-fledged book. Right. And um, it, it, because there's just so much information that's not available to whether you're a church planter, a multi-site, or even if you're just a single location church looking to move out of a school for the first time, there's not any good information as to what's our options and, and how do we know what's the good options and bad options. Absolutely. And I, I feel like I spend a uh, significant portion of our time, my time specifically, on building stuff. We're multi-site and we've got building issues all across the board, basically at all our campuses. Um, so, so this book is of you know, huge interest. Actually, we bought it. It's one of those things we've been reading as a leadership team. Um, so what are some misconceptions about church buildings, Jim? What are some things that might be floating out there that people are like, ah, there may be held truths that aren't really true? What are some misconceptions? Well, before I jump into that, I wanted to also say, you know, our book it really is a compilation of a number of blog postings and f specific uh, focused uh, art writings, articles about things related to facilities. But Tim and I were the biggest contributor to the book, but the third largest contributor was was you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was Mitch Birch. Several, several of our uh, chapters are from you. Hey, I and, got my free book out of it, so that's good. So, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, and we appreciate that. And so, no, it was great. Happy uh, to help. Uh, you know, some of the misconceptions, um, you know, what really thing that started, stimulated my thinking a couple years ago about this, uh, a book that I read that just had a profound impact upon me was uh, Ken Follett's book, um, mm. 
uh, ah, um, six pillars. The the, the uh, what was that? The pillars book. Yeah, yeah, but that's the, that the um, think of it a minute. Um, just think of it. But it's all it's a novel all about the writing, the building, a historical novel all about building uh, pillars of the earth. That's the name of the book, pillars of the earth, about the building of a cathedral in the Middle Ages. And uh, and it's a very you know well written thousand page book and just all the dynamics and, and issues that were going on that brought about the building of these great cathedrals in Europe. Right. Uh, and they were a lot, they were economic, they were political, they were spiritual. Uh, and, and really, we've been uh, the, the the guidelines and the um, principles that produced those great cathedrals have been really the, the the guidelines that we've been operating churches, building churches on for a, a millennium. Right. But all that's changed. Began to, all that's really changed in the last 20 years. Hmm. And uh, and, I, and so that was one of the I think you know there's some new rules about church buildings. Right. But I think some of the myths that we often operated under in the last generation or so, uh, probably one of the biggest ones. If we build it, they will come. Right. And uh, and I like to say that you know um, we built these big, huge, mega church campuses in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, in in America, why? Because we could. Right. The money was there. The 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 impetus was there. The motivation was there. Uh, but the recession really has changed that thinking dramatically, as well as some other factors which we can talk about in a few moments. Some other things that have changed these rules. But if we build it, they will come. But another another misconception is that's a, sort of a var variation of that is if we launch it, they will come. Mm. This, is the, this is the danger of multi-siting churches. Hey, we got a great pastor, great church, great communicator, great ministries, and we're maxed out in our one location. If we just go start, open up a theater or a school or another building, uh, you know, 20 minutes away, uh, people will just flock there just because we have all these great things going on. No, you still got to do the basic uh, church 101, good hard work of loving and serving your community right. uh, and, and all that. But but you still need facilities and all that sort of thing. So these are a couple of the rules that uh, obviously have mis misconceptions. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing, too, is that buildings reach people. You know, if we just build this fabulous building. More people will come just because it's... More will come because yeah. the building will overwhelm them. Maybe in some time in, in the past, I don't know that that was ever true, but um, that is, the, you know, buildings don't reach people. People reach people. Right. And, uh, buildings are tools. They're a means to the end. They're not the end game. And I think one of the one of the unfortunate realities I think of Western Christianity is that we have put so much emphasis. Uh, we've defined success in church work as a building. Right. Church building. The goal is to get to a building. Right. And the bigger the building, the the greater the success. Right. And yet, uh, and you know, a big large building will will serve a, a growing church under a dynamic leader for maybe a gener a decade or two or three. Mm -hmm. While that pastor's there, but often uh, um, the next the next round, the next generation, that that large building becomes unfortunately an albatross around their neck, something they can't afford, something they can't sustain. That's why we have a lot of downtown urban cathedrals empty, you know that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think in the next decade we're going to see a lot of super mega campuses, uh, of mega churches that have overbuilt. And we'll not be able to sustain sustain that. Now, the megachurch movement is not dying. Matter of fact, we're going into a gigachurch world, right. which gigachurch is a new definition, a new a new word to describe churches that have over ten thousand in attendance mm -hmm. on a given weekend. A megachurch being over two thousand. And now, and from our latest research, uh, Outreach Magazine is de defined or described to surface seventy two gigachurches in America today. Wow. Over 10, wow. Most of those are multi-site churches. Right. 
It's, um, and that's the reason why they can get that big because they're not limited to a building now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's been amazing to watch. You know, I, I noted recently um, that it seems like a, those churches that are at the very top. Um, you know, the like I'm thinking New Spring, like they don't have a massive, you know, like 10,000 seat room somewhere. You know, they have a multiplicity of rooms across. That seems to be, at least from right. a layman's perspective, that seems to be, you know, the trend. You know, Tim, what are some of the new rules? Kind of, you're obviously in the trenches, talking to a lot of churches, working with a lot of churches um, that are building buildings. What are some of those kind of new rules concerning church uh, facilities? What are people building today? Yeah, people, you know, for example, you mentioned New Spring. I'm, uh, I attend uh, Elevation Church in Charlotte. Great, yeah. Uh, you know, our, our, biggest, our biggest campus is 1,100 seats. Right. We, we want 25,000 people on a weekend with the largest worship center being 1,100 seats. Right. Um, we do, you know, lots of services, uh, but the idea was, you know, why not have campuses that are only 30,000, 35,000 square feet? So you're investing five, six, seven million dollars per campus if you're owning it and buying it or building right. it. Um, but that makes a whole lot better sense to be able to run a campus that is, uh, you know, if you're running four services and you're pushing thirty-five hundred to four thousand per location per service, and most of these multi-sites, when you're in that kind of tight quarters, you're getting a higher percentage of seats being covered with butts on right. Sunday. Right. So the old 80% rule doesn't apply in those kind of settings anymore. You're getting 90, 95, even pushing 99% total coverage of seats to, to people and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, Elevation, is a, that's a perfect example. I think that, um, you know, I don't want people to miss what you said there. To be, you know, Elevation to run 25,000, you know, people on a weekend and to have the largest room be 1,100 seats, which is not a large room. Like, that's it's a big room, but that's not a massive room. Um, you know, to build. That's incredible. Yeah. Any, any yeah. other trends? Yeah. The, uh, the other trends are, are coming out of the recession, we've seen more and more of the, you know, the big box church. Mm. Um, and, and that's because there was so much empty retail. Right. And it didn't, didn't really matter whether or not I was in, you know, um, Kalamazoo, Michigan, or if I was in Orlando, there was a lot of empty retail. Right. And so that became the natural gravitation point, particularly for planners and multi-site, is, you know, why go buy land? Um, and one of the examples we used in the book was, was showing how by going into a shopping center, you don't have to do the site work, you don't have to do the parking lot, you don't have to do all of those infrastructural type things that could run 40 to 50% of the cost of a project. Right. The downside of that is people just assume because it's an old retail store that it has enough parking and it's properly sprinkled and has air conditioning. And so they, they misconceive, and this is going back to Jim's misconceptions, they misconceive as to what it really is going to cost them to get in that big box store right. and they undershoot it. Right. Okay. Very cool. Now, are there besides the big box trend? You know, Jim, are there other from your vantage point? You've been through. You know, you've worked. You worked at Willow, who you know they have the big room uh, and they have multiple smaller locations. Are there other trends that you're you're seeing as you're you know interacting with your clients, you know, across the country? Well, I think just to, to build on what Tim was saying, uh, the one thing is that we're seeing um, smaller facilities with multiple uh, venues. And you know, right. when a church, for example, is saying we need, we want to build a 2,000 seat auditorium. Uh, I think the ideal size is is around twelve to fifteen hundred seats maximum for most right. churches, but I but some cities will have higher de- people density and et cetera. And I say you know if, if you don't put the the concept of multi-site is don't put all your eggs in one location, and even in that one location if you're going to have a lot of seats don't put them all in one room. 
Uh, you're going to have 1,800 seats, 1,500 seats. Maybe you ought to do 1,000 in one room and 500 in another. And then right. that, becomes, uh, that, that gives you more options, more flexibility for worship styles, for uh, uh, you know, uh, different language groups or whatever. You know, okay, it gives you a lot more options. So I think there's that one. I th to your point, the, uh, the big box, it, yeah, very few churches, multi-site churches, are buying land and building buildings. Right. Now, we're starting to see maybe a few start to do that after 10, 15 years of being successful in a rented space, and now let's own our space. And um, that may make more sense. But, um, uh, but we're seeing all kinds of use, usage of all different kinds of facilities. You know, the recession did produce a lot of empty space, and I love the idea of that we're not, you know, the, the work of the church is not only about redeeming lives, that's what we're about, but we're actually redeeming space. Yeah, and absolutely. Redeeming space and, and blighted areas where there are people that need a church. This has been a great boom for, for local churches uh, that to, um, to be able to extend themselves uh, into these difficult, challenging, uh, under-resourced areas because they're not on their own. They're part of a larger church that's, you know, resourcing them and that sort of thing, getting them beyond survival. But we do, you know, the primary location still, 50% of our multi-site campuses started a school. Mm. Um, that's starting to change a little bit because now, the, you know, the, as the economy is getting better, schools are less, they were desperate t 10 years ago, <laughs> needing the right. money. Um, and, um, but um, uh, clearly the trends are smaller facilities. Right. We don't need to build 3,000, 5,000 seat auditoriums. That, that, that day is over, in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, let, let, me, let me kind of jump in on one of the things that, that Jim talked about, the multi-venue on the same campus. Um, Jim and I were, were both consulting a church in Virginia Beach that uh, said they needed another two to three hundred seats in their worship center, but they also need about a two hundred seat uh, youth facility. <laughs> well, tell you what, instead of building a bigger box that's going to sit empty five to six days a week, why don't you build a three hundred seat youth facility that's oversized for youth, but it becomes your second venue on campus because the youth don't meet on Sunday morning. Absolutely. And so that that's one of the trends I think that Jim and I are both seeing more of is, you know, you need a larger space for worship, but you're not going to build a bigger room. Right. Another trend along that same line, and it's it's related, it, all these things are so related, Rich. Mm -hmm. uh, increasingly, newer churches for sure, and a lot of the older churches are moving this direction. They're moving the youth ministry off of Sunday morning. Right. At least the high school age yeah. group. And... And many in the middle school because they're sit for two reasons. One is is that we feel like we've we've done a disservice to our, to to the uh, young generation by segregating them from the rest of the church. Mm -hmm. And so when they graduate from high school, they tend to uh, they don't come back to church because their church doesn't exist anymore. Right. But it, and and so there's a move clearly to let's worship together, serve together as families, at least from mm -hmm. junior high up. And uh, and then they have their own youth group or whatever on Wednesday night, Sunday night, or another night of the week. And so that student room becomes a worship video venue. Uh, um, on a Sunday morning, which gives them more seats and a uh, you know without any more additional cost, so that's a trend that we're seeing uh, as well. That's related to facility usage, and see these are the kinds of things that are trained. Back in my back in the day when I was a pastor, and, uh, you know we we intentionally built really strong youth programs on Sunday morning to complement the adult services. Now another trend that's affecting church attendance and facilities is that. Today, back in the day, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, it was a cultural norm. Everybody went to church, mm -hmm. and they all, we all went and expected it. It was almost like if you don't go to church, what's wrong with you? Today, right. it's you go to church, what's wrong with you? You know, right. you're weird. Right. But uh, when people do come to church, the people we're trying to reach, 
they're not coming like we used to all morning, Sunday morning, 9 to noon. You know, all, we all go to Sunday school, then we all go to worship. That didn't happen anymore. They come right. for one, one service, they're gonna, and they're going to come at that 11 o'clock, and they're going to stumble in late to that. <laughs> and, and so that you got one shot to reach those people, that, that later hour, 10 to 11 o'clock hour frame. Uh, is the ideal time for the unchurched people, and mm -hmm. so you want to be ready for them. But if we're segregating the youth, and they, if the youth have their own service, then they, you know, we're not being together. So there's that trend there of uh, acknowledging we have a, uh, our, our attendance, our crowd, our target is not coming to spend all Sunday morning, and they're not going to come at 9 o'clock or Saturday night, but you can get your core members to go there to create space at 11. Very cool. Yeah, Kara Powell for, um, from Fuller wrote an incredible book called Sticky Faith that if you haven't looked into that, it explores this exact issue around uh, yeah. young people particularly and how do we pass the message on to the next generation. They did this great study where, uh, the, to summarize it, and I'm going to butcher it, but to summarize it, they looked at young people that um, were still connected to their church after college or after those that those um, you know that that age bracket, and they found the thing that get that got them connected wasn't great, incredible, you know, segregated student ministry. It actually was intergenerational relationships, and so her, you know, her work really does challenge some of the norms, or at least some of the practices, you know, that have been a core that are obviously, you know, that's undergirding even what we're seeing on the facility side. Well, Rich, talking about the next generation, the latest research about the millennials, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the young adults now that are coming into the church, uh, it's they, uh, they're much more inclined to, to smaller mm. venue facilities, which is very con conducive to a multi-site model. Yep. Uh, they're, not, they're not drawn to or attracted to big mega uh, facilities, and so this is very concerning if you're the, <laughs> the possessor of a huge mega yeah, massive venue. building. Yep. Uh, the next generation is not only uh, not drawn to them, they're turned off by it. Right. And, um, now they're not turned off by big churches that do things well, but they do it in smaller venues. It's more about you know high high tech, but also high touch. Right. Uh, you know, high community and high social engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, and churches that are doing that, and this is one of the things that we're seeing in in the list of the fastest growing churches, the largest growing churches every year that Outreach Magazine produces. There are three characteristics that are common among all those, or, or tend to be common among those churches, three things that they all are doing. They are getting their people into small groups, that's that community, that you know, relationship, relational uh, aspect of church. They're getting, they're, they're locally, they are externally focused and they're serving their communities in high profile ways. They're you know, uh, doing good in the community and uh, bringing value to the community. And then thirdly, they, they're multi-siting. They're getting right. absolutely, they're absolutely. Smaller locations. They're smaller. Cool. Well, uh, you know, any uh, any other anything else you'd like to add, Tim, before we uh, wrap up? This has been a fantastic conversation today. I'm so glad that you've uh, decided to spend some time with us. Uh, anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Yeah, tied to that connectivity that Jim just mentioned, uh, one of the, the big facility trends that we're seeing is the, the larger lobby connecting spaces. Mm. Uh, when, when I started doing this in 19... Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the idea was we would use maybe one to two square feet per person for a foyer, a narthex, if you will. Right. And it, it, in, in those days, it was strictly a cattle shoot to get people from one Absolutely. part of the building outside. Yes. Now... The common rule of thumb is the, the lobby needs to be a, no less than 50% the size of the worship space. Wow, that's great. People are looking to connect. We, we, for too many years, have allowed ourselves to become backyard uh, inhabitants. We pull in our garage at night, we put the fences up, and we go live in our backyard, and we don't communicate with each other. 
the, 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 the millennials particularly are looking for connection to each other. And I think even people in Gemini's age group, and you're obviously not there yet, Rich, but <laughs> eventually you will be. Yeah. We're looking for connectivity because we've lost it over the years. Right. And so being able to have spaces, and I'm not just talking a big open foyer. I'm talking about you know comfy couch areas and cafe areas and and you know little private nooks. Conversation pits. Exactly. People are looking to connect with each other before, after, during the week. Um, more and more churches are saying, hey, we, we want to open up our lobby space for those small groups, but they don't want to meet in a classroom. They want to meet in a conversation pit. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, this has been a great conversation today. I'm super excited about uh, that, uh, this conversation. I'm glad you guys have you've come in and, you know, and given us lots to think about. Um, we're going to link to your book in the show notes, so you can drop by on Seminary and find that. Uh, Jim, if people want to get into Oh, look at that. You've got a picture of it right there. you got the actual book. Nice. Church locality. That's great. So we'll link to that. Uh, Jim, if people want to get in touch with you, learn more about what you do from a multi-site point of view, how can they do that? Well, you can go to my website, uh, multisitesolutions.com. That's multisitesolutions.com, all one word, and um, that would be the best way to contact, connect with me, and love to hear from you. Great. And Tim, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yeah, they can either go to coolsolutionsgroup.com or email me at tim at coolsolutionsgroup.com. Nice. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thank Rich. You. Thanks, Tim. Rich. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Unseminary podcast. Don't be shy. We'd love to connect. Check out Unseminary Inbox. You can sign up at unseminary.com and we'll send you helpful training resources every week. Plus, you'll gain immediate access to our exclusive members area with tons of resources you can use. Connect with Rich on Twitter at Rich Birch or through email rich at unseminary.com Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at unseminary.com It includes links to what we talked about today and more. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Did you enjoy today's episode? Drop by iTunes and leave a review. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's Unseminary podcast. Join us next week when we'll learn more stuff we wish they taught in seminary.